Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. are back. It's been a couple of months. One of us has a sabbatical behind them. Um, I'm so happy to see the two of you. Gosh, it's I've really missed you. Um, let's hear. Sarah, how was it? What was? Tell us about sabbatical. Sabbatical was awesome. I feel like refreshed and also like hitting the like wall of reality at the same time, um, is, is, you know, we're, that's what we're doing now, but you know, we just moved to Mississippi basically for two months, which is so funny because when we were originally planning sabbatical, which was like three years ago, it was like a European tour and my word, how much our lives have changed. Um, we own a house in Mississippi now and we went there instead of France. Um, no, it's fine. Uh, we were there, yeah, all summer and just kind of used it as a, as you know, our, our hub. So we went to New York for three weeks and stayed in the rectory of Calvary St. George's, thanks to the very generous Melina and Jacob Smith. And that was amazing to show our kids New York. Amazing. It was so fun. And then we were supposed to go see family in, this is so funny, in Chicago, and they ended up getting COVID. So we went to Las Vegas. <laughs> pivot. Um, pivot. Which might be where COVID started, but they have six swimming pools. So um, and all that the swimming was, pools. Las Vegas was so much fun. Where'd I you mean, stay? We, Which hotel did you stay at? We stayed at the Venetian. Nice. It was really. I've nice. been there once. Yeah. It was great because they have St. Mark's Square. It, it oh, really is the Epcot yes. of Las Vegas. You can yep. say that you've gone to Venice if you've gone to Las Vegas. I mean, I will. Um, the dirty Epcot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the risky Epcot. <laughs> it was It was just magical. We also went to Dollywood with our best friends this summer. So it was just really, it was wow. great. Yeah. Sarah, did you see any shows uh, in Las Vegas? I have to ask. We did. So we saw um, the first show we saw was Blue Man Group, and which Josh really wanted the kids to see, and because he's a better parent than I am. And we, I, I bought the tickets. I didn't say a word, and mm-hmm. we got into the theater. And before the show started, I turned to Josh and I said, "I saw this when I was 14 years old, and I swore as God was my witness, I would never have to sit through it again." <laughs> <laughs> and Josh was like, "Well, I hope you can keep an open mind." Um, <laughs> So I had a glass of Chardonnay and thoroughly enjoyed uh, watching my kids' faces in Blue Man Group. And then we did Cirque du Soleil, the Beatles show, y'all. Yeah. It was just, it was pure magic. Jealous, yeah. It was a day of, I thought of you the whole time. Like, I just was like, Dave would love this. It was amazing. So, Um, yeah, yeah, I just, I I mean, I know Las Vegas isn't where most people go on some bad Place of refreshments, but, rest and I mean, refreshments. Yeah. That is really funny that you guys went to Las Vegas but on your sabbatical. I just, you know, it was a little bit of, I guess my whole life is, it was a little bit of an homage to mom and dad because they weren't like Vegas booze and gambling people. They were Vegas spectacle people. And so and I knew they loved Vegas and it was so fun to see it and think about them. You know, oh. just like these two kids from Mississippi who love like faux magic. 
So it was cool. It's like Americana. If you could, if you can, if you can sort of strip out the seediness, it's like yes. a, it's this Americana miracle almost. But yeah, I mean, I remember being there and being like, "Wow, there's a lot of like <laughs> billboards in your face here." I don't know how I'd feel about you know bringing the small children. It's one gigantic here. Times Square. Yeah. Well, it's if like, you yeah. just if you just go to your hotel and there's yeah. plenty to do, they don't have to see it. I will say some some people suggested to take them to like old Las Vegas, mm. like OG Las Vegas, and so we went. And I was like, we're gonna have lunch there. It's gonna be great. And we got down there, and ten minutes later, we were in an Uber on the way back. <laughs> I was like, too real. This is too depressing. See this. We too gotta much. go. Everyone smells like cigarettes. Yeah. So anyway. I just remember old ladies with blue hair, smoking cigarettes, pulling on slot machines. Like that's that's what I remember from Las Vegas. Very much still old Vegas. Right. Yeah. Uh, Well, well, how about the Heyman clan? Didn't you go to the motherland, RJ? Uh, Not close. Not quite. We were not in Holland, but yeah, we had kind of a embarrassingly uh, amazing summer. As one of my as one of my teenage, actually my now twenty year old son, he's like, this is definitely like far and away our bougiest summer ever, and I had to had to agree with him. So we got uh, invited by some good friends who were gifted a house in Costa Rica uh, to go down there for a week. So sort of went down there and able to stay for free. And then my mom, um, since her seventieth birthday a few years back, had wanted to take the whole family on a big trip. And so we went with her and all my brothers and their wives and cousins and everything to um, France for a little while, which was amazing, amazing. And then um, I had a couple uh, guest preaching gigs, which were fun. Um, One at this kind of community in Rhode Island, which which was great. And then I was in New York for a weekend. So yeah, but been back for about a month now, and um, like blessedly, all the kids are back in school as of today, Mm -hmm. which is just amazing for me and most especially for my wife. And um, just looking forward to what feels like what is kind of my first normal year, you know, mm. as as rector since I started two and a half years ago, my first kind of COVID free year. And so we'll uh, we'll see what that looks like, but excited to get into something like a routine, you know, where we're not having to reimagine and change everything every month or two. Um, what are but you talking? Yeah, just, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I feel the same way, RJ. It's like sweet to hear you say that because this is like the first year it's of our first, college students. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. yeah. I'm trying to be a little <laughs> merciful with this. myself, yes. um, but also like kind of just amazed at God's faithfulness and and looking back at all that has happened the past couple years. I'm I'm deeply grateful for my church and their support and just uh, anyway. Um, yeah, so that's where, where I'm at. What about you, DZ? What about the Zoll household? Oh, it was it was it was a really nice summer. We got to travel, go to the beach. We had both boys go to sleepaway camp. Um, oh, yes, the older the, dr- the dream. <laughs> they went to three weeks long sleepaway camps, and they just love it. I mean, that's they so good. I mean, just in the stories that come back, you just yes, sort of, um, yes, it feels it, it feels great. I mean, we had one. How our, old do you have to be to do that? How old do you have to? What's uh, the four? Nine. <laughs> Like my three more years, three more years. My my middle child like got to got to uh, got to camp, and we we received probably like six letters from his first two days, and then nothing for the rest of the time because he had a great time. But those the first letters were sort of like, "Dear mom and dad, everyone in here is betting for playing poker and betting with candy, but I can't play because no candy, no betting." 
P.S. Uh, you can bring candy to Camp Maxwell. And we, <laughs> that told was you the so. whole thing. We're like, oh gosh, no. Ca-. So no candy, no betting is now like a, a rule in our house. And by the end, he was just he was just living. Uh, he was just so happy and just watch them. Awesome. But then we were we were just in in Michigan at Camp Arcadia. Shout out to all those lovely people. And uh, you know. Uh, it's just so beautiful and fun. And that's a family camp that we get to go to and did some weddings. And, you know, for a lot of the rest of my time, uh, we, we released the Brothers is All, the second season of the Brothers is All podcast. So good. If anyone, if, if people are starved for content, which I, I doubt that's the case, but uh, that's been, a, that was really fun, but also a whole lot of work. Um, and then. One of my parishioners loved your Phil Collins Well of Sound. He was just blown away. He's like, you got to give me his email address so I can tell him how great it was. It was amazing. Dave, oh, Dave's wow. incredible. I was like, Dave's, calm it down. Dave's okay. Dave's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of that. But then everything, it's all systems go for the book, uh, Low Anthropology, which comes out. RJ, when does it come out? I don't know. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> in three weeks. <laughs> in Just three tell weeks, me. In three weeks, okay. Trailer Dave, today. Dave, it comes out in three weeks. Are you no, going to influence? Edit everything else are you going to be an influencer, RJ, or not? What kind of friend are you? Like, I have a calendar. You guys, down, okay? mark your calendar. September 13th, it's coming out. I can't wait. It's going to be well, incredible. You know what? Life-changing. Next, next episode, I'm going to read a little bit of the introduction and hear what you guys think about it, because you guys both, I mean, I'm not just blowing smoke. You influenced this book quite a bit, and it says so in the because a lot of the Aww. a lot of the articles and some of the our, our, my favorite discussions of ours kind of I tried to lean on for the book so I'm glad to be back at it let me ask you this though before we jump into the articles of which we've got some great ones was there anything um, recommendation wise that you found just really fed your soul uh, this summer anything that you would want to I mean RJ it could be cliff jumping I don't I don't care. Uh, Sarah, any books you read, anything, any sort of resources from our little break that you wanted to uh, gift to impart? So, yes, actually. Um, there's an app called Soul Time that I resisted getting and resisted. It was kept being advertised to me. And then I saw Justin Welby was like, I love Soul Time um, in his accent. Mm. And um I was like, I got to try this. And I cannot recommend it enough. It's like a daily meditation. It's like probably two to five minutes long and there's scripture and I just found it really grounding, um, this summer and actually same for the brothers all. I really enjoyed Josh and I talked so much about that podcast this summer because, um, it reminds you how, uh, how much you love ministry. So it was like a really sweet thing for us to have. Um, yeah. So those were like two things this summer that were, that were special for me. Oh, thank you. What about you, Rucker? Uh, so I haven't finished it yet. It's always um, a bit of a risk to recommend something that you haven't finished yet. I, I learned that with a podcast once. I listened to the first half, and I recommended it to a bunch of people. Then I listened to the second half, and I was like, oh, that was a bad recommendation. <laughs> and I had to apologize. That's how I feel about sports. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, good, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just kidding. No, but I, I, I don't know how I found it. I think through something online, but I've been reading this book by Zachary Levi, believe it or not, who... Um, was actually the voice of the of Flynn Rider in Tangled. He was also played Shazam. If you watch that, that and, and he, I know yeah, it always good. You know, it, always, it, it was we not. We know how I you forgot, feel about Tangled. We know I feel about Tangled. But he wrote a book. He's a Christian, believe it or not, and he wrote a book called um, Radical Love, which is kind of an autobiography oh. of his own journey with um, kind of depression and addiction and therapy 
and I found it to be really helpful and insightful, actually, and sort of um, feeding for someone who is also kind of a perfectionist mm. and, uh, you know, wants everyone to like them all the time. Um, I found that to be to be helpful. So again, I'm about halfway through, and maybe it'll all take a turn for the worse. But up till now, it's been uh, it's been good. I liked I liked Shazam. I love that guy. And I, yeah. I did I did I had heard through various circles that he was a, a, a Christian or churchgoer or some some strain, and that he was really uh, in the morass of Hollywood. Um, yeah, that he was a real a real light. Seems like a guy. genuine a genuine dude. Yeah, That's awesome. and very honest, very honest, which is refreshing. I do have one more recommendation. Hit me. What you got? This is especially for the for the clergy that listen to this. You have to watch Bob's Burgers. It's the best show. Wasn't there a movie history. that just came out? Was there a Bob there. Burger movie? We found out. Oh, that's we, a, that's we what are, you mean, not the show, but the movie. No, I mean it all. We're okay, committed all as it. a family okay. to this this whole thing. My boy said that told, was good. The first couple of seasons are like not kid friendly. Apparently, it got friendlier, kid friendlier, and so we haven't watched those. Um, but um, so don't start at the beginning, start at like season three. But like when the movie came out, we were so obsessed that we like, um, we found it only, it was only going to be in the theater one more day and we got like late night tickets and took the kids to see Bob's Burgers this summer. So oh my anyway, gosh. I just, it's I love, such a, I, I need to delve back in. It's a beautiful marriage. It's a beautiful relationship with, with kids. It's, you know, they're kind of all in on this one institution that has good days and bad days. And <laughs> I, I just, I just could not, I mean, I just could not love it more. So anyway, Bob's Burgers. Okay, I'm going to take that to the bank. I, I watched yeah. the first season of Bob's Burgers. I loved it. I don't know what happened, because yeah. I love John Benjamin. I think his voice is just... And, oh, so good. And, um, uh, so good. But I... Uh, I, I I kept noticing Sarah. You you were kept like putting on your stories on Instagram. You're like I Bob Burger stuff. I, I was just, like, she's going through. She's like really deep we're into in this. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're. I'm in gonna it. say Sound of Metal too is really amazing. Oh, have you guys okay. seen Sound of Metal? No. Have you seen that, Dave? Have you not seen Sound of Metal? I have not. I've been told by a lot of people I need to watch. It's about the deaf was, heavy metal drummer. I I yeah. It was profound. It was. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very good. Well, so, for me, my, it, was, it was all about uh, Better Call Saul this summer. That uh, show, yeah. I think, is an American masterpiece. And I won't, I can't even... Is it better than Breaking Bad? Is it superior to Breaking Bad? I mean, can you be superior to... I mean, that's it's so good. It's I on watched that the same first episode, level. and I... On the same level, okay. I it's on that same that. level. I mean, I'd say, cool. again, the first couple of seasons is a little bit like, what am I watching? And then it, it evolves into this thing about the most serious things in life, but also yeah. love and these characters. And there's... Redemption, um, yeah, I, 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 you can't, the last episode you don't want to spoil, but there's, uh, the Breaking Bad universe tends to be by Vince Gilligan, who's the creator, his own admission that it's a pretty sort of eye for an eye, no one gets away with anything, uh, mm. you reap what you sow kind of universe, and I don't know how the final... I'm still processing it. The other thing is I found out through one of our listeners, a guy named Adam Pietriano, I think I'm saying that incorrectly, but told me about something called the Neil Morse Band, which is a, I was, I was t writing and podcasting about um, Phil Collins and Genesis a lot, this prog rock from the 70s, which is these ridiculously long songs about esoteric subjects. And it turns out, like, 
Prague rock is still a thing. And one of the leading lights is this super outspoken Christian guy who like every review of his on Amazon is like, I'm not a Christian, but I kind of like this music. Or like, <laughs> if you can get over the Christianity, then it's fine. And so he's got like, you know, a whole concept record called Sola Scriptura, which is about Martin Luther. And there's, oh there's, there's a 28 what? minute, 28 minute rock song called The Door. And it's, it's, it, it will melt your face. And then he's got, what's, a, what's his person's he's name? He's got a double disc album that is an adaptation of Pilgrim's Progress, you know, and it's, what? and it's, it's called Similtune of a Dream, Neil Morse Band. If if you Neil if Morris you can handle okay. music that just goes on and on and on, um, and, but it's come from a deeply sympathetic. I, I was describing it to my wife, and she was like, "How did you not? Hey, how did you not know about this? And how could something possibly be made more?" For you. For so, you, yes, hi. yes. That's my little Maybe thing. there is a God <laughs> that likes Dave's all. <laughs> and the, I just find it so funny when I just read review after review after review, and they're like, you know, I really can't handle some of the preachiness, but those guitar solos are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, like, against their better judgment, all these Europeans are like, I don't understand, you know, <laughs> but I like the drums, you know. <laughs> That's so funny. So um, let's start off with an article. Frederick Buechner died uh, last yeah. week at the age of 96. What a beautiful age to die. Um, and, uh, you know, he has been uh, sort of a mainstay on our website. But after he's died, so many tributes have been written by people who certainly I very much respect and voices around. I, I confess I haven't read that much Buechner outside of like his more his aphorisms and, and many of his like tributes to him. Um, a few essays, not the novels, but we have people who've written for Mockingbird and uh, certainly in our surrounding constellation just just say that this this man's voice was so formative. Um, and I thought I'd begin by reading something that David Brooks wrote in the New York Times called The Man Who Found His Inner Depths, sort of a eulogy for Beekner. And Beekner, he reports early on that when he was 10 years old, his father, um, I killed himself. And oh. so his entire life was sort of lived and he, he, he bounced around. He was sort of a little bit to the manner born, I think, and, um, taught at Exeter at the boarding school. And Does I, a little I bit didn't know that. Manor born mean fancy. I have no idea what that phrase means. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what okay. it means. Okay. Great. Um, for, for the deep I, South I people he, <laughs> who grew up with cotton farmers, that's yes, what that means. I think he, he okay. married a, uh, a, a woman with the last name of Merck. M e r c k. If you, that, oh. that means anything to the okay. pharmaceutical, I do know what that lovers. means. Yeah. Their stock we know has our done pharmaceuticals in this. Their stock has so. done okay the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's. Um, so. Uh, this is what Brooks says. He says, too literary for many Christians. Buechner was also too Christian for the literary set. His faith was personal, unpretentious, and accessible. This is Buechner writing. Faith is homesickness. Faith is a lump in the throat. Faith is less a position on than a movement toward. It is a sensing presence, not buying an argument. Buechner described the gospel as a great fairy tale that happens to be true. Mm. The fairy tale has pain and danger. Goodness is pitted against evil. People are transformed. And in the end, all the characters are revealed for who they really are. To live within this fairy tale is to experience the, quote, joy and beauty and holiness beyond the walls of the world. Christians, Buechner wrote in one novel, should get up every morning, read the times, and ask themselves, can I believe it all again today? If you say yes, 10 out of 10 days out of 10, he wrote, then you probably don't know what believing means. 
But on the days you can say yes, quote, it should be a yes that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. One of Beekner's off-sighted observations is that you find your vocation at the spot where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Like many others, Brooks is writing this about himself, I struggle to experience my inner life in the quiet, patient, deep, and old-fashioned way that Beekner experienced his. So much of the world covers over all that. Constant media consumption, shallow communication, speed and productivity. Sometimes I think the national obsession with politics has become a way to evade ourselves. Beekner's vocation was to show a way to experience the fullness of life. Of death, he wrote... What's lost is nothing to what's found, and all the death that ever was, set next to life, would scarcely fill a cup. I want to read a little bit more of what Misha Willett wrote for Mockingbird about Frederick Beekner, but before I do, um, do you guys have any, uh, any, any impressions here? I mean, I'm, I think I'm a lot like you, like I have read, uh, I haven't like sat down and read a ton of Beekner. So, um, he was just sort of this figure that, you know, whenever I read what he'd said or read people writing about him, I really appreciated what was there. Um, you know what I, what I think about sort of how I categorize him, um, and it's, it's what I, I love about the best theologians is there's a sense of whimsy, mm-hmm. it feels like, and what he writes and freedom Mm. and i always find that to be incredibly comforting i mean i I do know that phrase and i think it's a little overused in the church to be honest with you about like your greatest deepest desire meets the world's greatest need yeah because like my deepest desire is to watch all the housewives (laughs) series on bravo like just on repeat and like eat ice cream do you know what i mean and like i have i've looked i really have I've been on Indeed.com. Like, I've tried to find a job that needs that for me, and I, I have yet to find it. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> but I would say, like, you know, all that aside, and I do, actually, I mean, I do think that's important, right? Because sometimes, sometimes for me, like, um, the the reality of who I am, I can't find in theology like this sometimes. I'll just be honest. That's that's a struggle I have sometimes uh, with theologians like Beekner. And yet, I hate to say this, as I've gotten older, the whimsy really appeals to me. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, of course, he's died, and that is sad for, for people who really loved him and knew him. But, um, but for those of us out here in the world, it was like a whole, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed being able to rediscover him and people writing about him and me thinking more like, maybe I'm finally ready to read Beekner, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. RJ, what do you, any, anything? Yeah. A couple of things. I mean, one, um, yes, I need to read more Beekner when I, um, make, have time or make time to read when I'm, when I'm done with Zachary Levi. When you're done uh, <laughs> Shazam first. Yes. yes. Beekner yes. second. Yes. First Shazam and, uh, Tangled and Chuck and then Beekner. Um, but someone posted, I think it was Kara Slade. I don't know mm. who it was. Someone posted on Facebook that both Beekner and Eugene Peterson were deeply affected, perhaps converted, by this pastor at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church um, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I I know that church because it's around the corner from where my kids used to go to school and they would do choir concerts there. And that that was interesting because I wondered who the preacher was Mm. that spoke so powerfully to these guys. And it was a guy named 
uh, a Brit named George Buttrick, uh, George Arthur Buttrick, who was one of the um, great preachers of his day. And I actually just got his book on Amazon. There's a Ford by Will Willimon. Um, oh, my who, gosh. Who, yeah. And, That's the, cool. and the, the book is called um, How to Preach the Gospel, something huh. like that. Hmm. Um, but it, it was impactful. I, we'll see how the book is, but it was impactful for me, again, just about the importance of preaching, like how impor- how preaching can turn lives around, and I don't know if you did you read this part in in um, Brooks's piece uh, where it about says, his conversion. Yeah, uh, his first novel was a great success. After his second, he came to faith. He was attending a church service in New York where the pastor was talking about how Jesus is crowned amid confession, tears, and great laughter. And quote, here's what Beekner said, at the phrase great laughter, for reasons that I have never satisfactorily understood, the great wall of China crumbled and Atlantis rose up out of the sea. And on Madison Avenue at 73rd Street, tears leapt from my eyes as though I had been struck across the face. Mm. Um, wow. And that's convicting for me because I, I, that's the kind of preacher I want to be. You know, that's, that's, I, I want to see hearts melted and lives transformed. And um, so I got that book. And I, it was like I said, I was talking with some, I was texting with somebody. I said, hey, if there's some guy that converted Eugene Peterson and Frederick Beekner, he was doing something right. Mm, right. And, uh, and I should probably think, you know, maybe he has, maybe I can learn something from him. That's beautiful. Um, and and I was also there was a um, I came across also like a Gallup poll or whatever recently from a few years back where they asked people um, why do you go to the church that you go to or what do you like about church and of course the two top things one was like seventy six percent and one was seventy five percent both had to do with preaching mm-hmm. right preaching that teaches me about Jesus preaching that teaches me about the Bible and preaching that connects with my life like speaks mm-hmm. to me where I am um, and so just the the importance of that and wanting to be wanting to be as good as I can possibly be in that arena. Yeah. You know? Yeah. One of the aphorisms I came across in uh, the days after his death, which Ken, Kenneth Tanner, who's a, kind of a friend, um, sent along from Beekner's A Room Called Remember, which I thought just, again, hit this hit me between the eyes. It said, the final yeah. secret, I think, is this, that the words, you shall love the Lord your God, become in the end less a command than a promise. Mm. Oh, and this yes. is what Misha, you know, so when we did that, yes. the, the Brothers Saw podcast, we've gotten a huge amount of uh, response to the episode we did on creativity, which is really about ministry. And I, I, Beekner strikes me as a deeply sort of creative person. He was never, you couldn't quite box him in, and he was um, writing novels all the time, then essays, and he was visiting as a, a, a professor here and mm. there and everywhere. Um, Misha Willett, um, at a very difficult time, who's the poet, uh, who we've published a book of his poetry, uh, at a very difficult time in his life, I guess, reached out to Beekner, and Beekner wrote back to him and gave him some books to read and uh, some reassurance. But this is what Misha says, um, talking about um, his sort of early work. He says, the act of radical self-disclosure one comes across in Beekner's several autobiographies is quite distinct from the TMI memoirs writers seem to deal in these days. His writing is closer to Augustine, because in every library nook, garage, pulpit, and darkened room, there lingers this, what, the big other? You'll have to read his books, really any one of them, to see what I mean, but it is there as real as anything, a hovering over the face of the depths into which he plunges us, nothing spared from view, because for Beekner, everything in its thingness is saturated with God presence. 
Nothing mm. isn't holy for him if we pay attention to it aright. And since the artist's work in any genre is primarily to act, is primarily an act of paying a kind of attention, a great many of us found him a guide to a certain way of being in the world. So if you're wondering why so many of us are moved by the gentle passing of a nonagenarian, which I guess means someone in their 90s, no one has heard much from in decades, it's because he laid bare to many for the first time the great laughter at the heart of creation, the boundless absurdity of grace, and the importance of our lives, really every single one of us, as a vehicle for laughter and grace. He told, that is, and taught us to tell something like the truth. Wow. So good. What a thing to say. That was really good. That reminds me, I think I've said shared this before, but Stephen Paulson says something in his little book, uh, Luther for Armchair Theologians. He said, Luther said that, that the religion that's closest to Christianity is actually animism, like people who worship the rocks and the trees and stuff, because the, at least they locate God doing something in the world, like not a God of imag- not a God who's out there in sort of some imaginary realm, but God who's actually operating in our in our day-to-day lives. And that sounds like what Beekner uh mm was sort of saying too. We've got a couple of posts coming up uh, on the website next week that I'll sort of provide from people who've, who have read a lot of Beekner. They'll provide some, some kind of a way forward for those of us who are interested in more. I thought I'd plunge us, speaking of plunging, from the sublime into the um, very worldly in the form of this is a New York Times Magazine article, The Rise of the Worker Productivity Score. This is by Jody Cantor and Arya Sundaram. Uh, they write, since the dawn of modern offices, workers have orchestrated their actions by watching the clock. Now, more and more, the clock is watching them. In lower paying jobs, monitoring is already ubiquitous, not just at Amazon, where the second by second measurements became notorious, but also for Kroger cashiers, UPS drivers, and millions of others. Eight of the 10 largest private U.S. employers track the productivity metrics of individual workers, many in real time according to our investigation. Now, digital productivity monitoring is also spreading among white-collar jobs and roles that require graduate degrees. Many employees, whether working remotely or in person, are subject to tracker scores, idle buttons, or just quiet, constantly accumulating records. Pauses can lead to penalties from lost pay to lost jobs. Radiologists, even these days, see scoreboards showing their, quote, inactivity time and how their productivity stacks up against their colleagues. Architects, academic administrators, doctors, nursing home workers, and lawyers describe growing electronic surveillance over every minute of the workday. They echoed complaints that employees in many lower paid positions have voiced for years, that their jobs are relentless and that they don't have control, and in some cases, they don't even have enough time to use the bathroom. In interviews and in hundreds of written submissions to the Times, white-collar workers describe being tracked as demoralizing, humiliating, and toxic. Micromanagement is becoming standard, they said. Now, Sarah, this is insane. I don't know if you heard this, but the metrics are even applied to spiritual care for the dying. The Reverend Margot Richardson of Minneapolis became a hospice chaplain to help patients wrestle with deep, searching questions. This is the big test for everyone. How am I going to face my own death? But two years ago, her employer started requiring chaplains to accrue more of what it called productivity points. A visit to the dying, as little as one point. Participating in a funeral, one and three quarters points. A phone call to grieving relatives, one quarter point. (laughs) 
TikTok videos. I know TikTok. TikTok videos offer tips for outsmarting the systems, including the invention of a quote-unquote mouse jiggler, a device that creates the appearance of activity. Classic. Uh, they quote the guy who built some of the most famous technology called WorkSmart. His name's Frederick Federico Mazzoli. He decided two years after building it to start using it. He became awash in anxiety and doubtful about its accuracy. Some days you were just moving the cursor around for the sake of it, he said. The tool was powerful but dangerous, and he left the company a year later. Back to the chaplains. Every morning, the chaplains would share on a spreadsheet the number of, quote, productivity points they anticipated earning. Every evening, software would calculate whether they had met their goals. But dying defies planning. Patients broke down, canceled appointments, drew final breaths. This left the clergy scrambling and in a perpetual dilemma. Do I see the patients who earn the points or do I see the patients who really need to be seen, said one chaplain. This is going to sound terrible. But every now and again, I would do just what I thought of as, quote, spiritual care drive-bys to rack up points. Mm. If a patient was sleeping, I could just talk to the nurse and say, are there any concerns? It counted as a visit because I laid eyes. But last summer, two of the chaplains uh, that they interviewed came to the same conclusions. The metrics prevented them from fulfilling their calling, and they quit. This is kind of a dystopian um, and in fact, when you scroll through this article, it's like, you have been reading for two minutes and 37 seconds. You know, I've noticed that you haven't, you've stopped scrolling. What is wrong? Like, it's a very mm. well done thing. Um, I always think this is like the uh, totally outlandish or it sounds so absurd. And then you read that people are genuinely using this with hospice chaplains. Um, it's what are they? It's you, we're all being nannied in some sort of way, it, it, and it seems to create self-consciousness, anxiety, and a desire to flee rather than a desire to do more work. But I don't know what what does it make you think of? I mean, I definitely had quotas when I worked on the hospital. Um, just to, I don't work there anymore, so um, I'm happy to say that. And they caused me a lot of anxiety at certain points um, because you could, you know, you were expected to see this many patients in a day, and it was a pretty high number. And then you, the, it is a weird thing because if there's death, it takes longer, you know. And depending on the culture the families come from. It, it can take longer. And so then you're not, you know, people are seeing your numbers at the end of the week and you're not meeting numbers. So um, that's not totally unfamiliar to me. Um, I mean, the system of points is terrifying. Um, I just can't imagine doing pastoral care that way, kind of checking boxes. Yeah, I mean, this is really bleak. I mean, at this by the same... You know, you have to, the, what the article points out that is fascinating is, is like, now it's like the white collar people who are like, <laughs> wait a minute, you know, this isn't any fun. I don't like being monitored. And, you know, people who've worked blue collar jobs have, have had this for a long time. Mm. So, you know, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see if it changes. Um, what do you think, RJ? Do you have any points have you gotten today? Yeah. <sighs> I want to know. I think you're behind. I think... Oh, God. I think this is what it looks like when a culture uh, bends its knee to the idol of profitability. Mm. You know, like we're talking about the largest uh, companies in the world, the most profitable, like as if Amazon's not making enough money, you know, as if the healthcare industry isn't making enough money and executives aren't, you know, making enough stock options. And it's just like, this is, this is what it looks like. And it, it kills people. 
You know, it kills, and it's also like, you know, high priests of this particular religion, um, you know, being unwilling to obey, submit themselves to the same laws as the as their followers. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I guarantee you, there are no CEOs. Or, you know, no, nobody at the sea level, you know, is submitting to these kinds of metrics. Uh, it's just what they're doing to the people beneath them. And and I will say, like, not to be, this is, sounds totally bougie to say, but I'm going to say it. Um, one thing that was interesting about the places we were in France this year is that um, they were closed a lot of the day. Yeah. You know, they're open for like a couple hours in the morning and a couple hours in the afternoon, evening, generally when people shop. But like you show up in the middle of the afternoon to try to like do some grocery shopping, like, sorry, dude, come back later. <laughs> Forget it. You know, yeah. the, the customer is not always right. right. <laughs> you know, so, sometimes yeah. the uh, sometimes the vendor is right. Sometimes the worker is right. And I thought that was it was interesting just to be in a culture that did not value um, profitability as highly as American uh, culture does. And that, you know, every culture has its own sins, right? Every, every, I'm not trying to idealize anything, but it was just, it was interesting. Mm. And uh, God, it's awful. Awful. It, it's, you're right, it's very dystopian. It's, it's, it's brave new world that, that we're doing to ourselves. You know, our 1984, the 1984 of capitalism. And uh, They sort yeah. of hint at the fact that some people like it because it means that... You know, Joe over there in the corner, who you know is playing solitaire, can no longer get away with it. And so, yes, uh, people who like it all Enneagram one. <laughs> I think you all could probably them. break it down. Yeah. They're what you call yeah. Pharisees. Yeah, they're uh, capitalist Pharisees. And then yeah. we become <laughs> Pharisees by rejecting it in, in our own way. But this this does seem to be like when big data, when everything becomes. Um, when we see big trackable big data as the solution yeah. to all of our problems because I'm you know they do say they say hey in the short term productivity rose amazingly and then all of a sudden all these people quit so it's like um it does work for a little while until it kills you you know it like it until the great resignation until the great resignation i think there's and and this is also by the way happening more and more because more and more people are, are working from home and so it's 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 seen sure. as like hey you want your freedom okay here's a big brother you know here's you a little accountability here's some want, accountability but we're going yeah. to be watching you you know it's it's yeah. it's very scary and i think it betrays a deep um a deep confusion about how human beings are, are motivated. Um, and yet maybe they don't really care because, you know, there's 20 other people waiting to do the job if, if you're not going to do it. Um, though everywhere I seem to go these days, no, no one right seems now. to want to do any jobs. Like it's a, yeah. So, um, so I, I just have to say, yeah. tell a story real quick from this summer. And, you know, I'm hoping our listenership is, is not that big. And also that, um, this doesn't cause this man to face some strife in his company. But, um, when we were in Las Vegas, they were having a, a subway owner like convention. So if you own a subway, like the sandwich establishment, you were coming to Las Vegas and staying in our hotel. Oh and um, there was this, there was this guy, we were waiting to get on the elevator and there's this guy and my husband, ever the observer noticed that he had his arms across his name tag. So you couldn't really see it. Huh. And Josh was like immediately wanted to ask him questions. And so we get on the elevator and there are these other people on the elevator and, and Josh, Josh looked at him and he goes, he said something like, Oh, I guess you work for subway. And the guy kind of got, he kind of moved his arms around and he goes, yeah, I'm the CEO. 
And Josh goes, which was on his name tag, and Josh goes, do you like, do you like Subway? And he goes, well, I kind of have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh so anyway it was just like a fascinating to meet someone who you know clearly is like at the very top right and and it's still it's this like obligatory i was like what an interesting response Hmm. you know like Hmm. and there were these people on also on the elevator who like owned you know a couple of subways in florida or something and they were so excited to meet him and he just had this like heaviness about him Mm. and i was like this is fascinating so i don't know just don't don't mention jared whatever you do oh my god i couldn't help it (laughs) i was just thinking like rule number one of the subway convention do not go there there. i'm such an affirmer when people seem sad so like he seemed down and then the one of the other um franchise people was like looked at me because i said oh we love subway we hardly ever did subway but i didn't know what to say so i was like oh we love subway and she's like do you like our new sandwiches no idea what she's talking about they're great (laughs) so i was just like affirm affirm he seems sad so wow well we're gonna we're gonna go from uh talking about productivity monitoring to another form of kind of um ruthless efficiency and this is though uh aimed at sort of doing good. The New Yorker published an extremely long profile, but fascinating, of uh, the what they called the reluctant profit of effective altruism. Gideon Lewis Krauss wrote this. Uh, it's a p- long profile of a young man who's, I mean, I think he's early 30s, named William McAskill, who's uh, English, and the movement that he is sort of at the center of called effective altruism. Now, this was eye-opening for me. I didn't really know about it. It's sort of the hyper-optimization of, um, of, of philanthropy. Philanthropy? Philanthropy. Yeah. yeah. Now... I'm going to read as much of I can. It's too long to really go in, but it, it traces the entire uh, movement of people trying to do. It's basically, uh, as one uh, uh, my friend Alan Noble put it, um, it's a form of humanitarianism that is obsessively focused on finding the absolutely most effective way of allocating resources. It's utilitarianism on big data. But I'll read to you from the profile. McCaskill helped to found a moral crusade called Effective Altruism. The movement, known as EA to its practitioners, who themselves are known as EAs, takes as its premise that people ought to do good in the most clear-sighted, ambitious, and unsentimental way possible. Among other back-of-the-envelope estimates, EAs believe that a life in the developing world can be saved for about $4,000. Effective altruists have lashed themselves to the mast of a certain kind of logical rigor, refusing to look away when it leads them to counterintuitive, bewildering, or even seemingly repugnant conclusions. For a time, the movement recommended that inspirited young people should, rather than work for charities, get jobs in finance and donate their income they kind of then paint this picture of the the vow of poverty that these um, all very sort of highly educated um, people have taken. And uh, McCaskill um, says, has a gap between his front teeth, and he told close friends that he was now thinking of getting braces because studies showed that more classically handsome people were more impactful fundraisers. A friend of his told me, we were like, dude... If you want to have the gap closed, it's okay. It felt like he had subsumed his own humanity to become a vehicle for the saving of humanity. 
Wow. It goes on, uh, Gideon Levi Strauss says, uh, effective altruism furnishes an all-encompassing worldview. It can have an ecclesiastical flavor, and early critics observed that the movement seemed to be in the business of selling philanthropic indulgences for the original sin of privilege. It has a priestly class whose posts on EA's online forum are often received as encyclicals. In the place of mass, EA's endure three-hour podcasts. There is an emphasis on humility (laughs) and a commandment to sacrifice for the sake of the neediest. It does, however, seem convenient that a group of moral philosophers and computer scientists happen to conclude that the people most likely to safeguard humanity's future are moral philosophers and computer scientists. The movement has prided itself on its resolute secularism, but long-termist dread, they talk about people who are interested in sort of saving the world from future pandemics and and nuclear war and and artificial intelligence are sort of concerned with long-termism rather than global hunger right now. Uh... The movement has prided itself on its resolute secularism, but long-termist dread recalled the verse in the book of Revelation that warns of a time when the stars will fall from the sky like unripe figs. Rob Reich, the the Stanford political scientist who once sat on the board of GiveWell, which is one of the EA sort of uh, companies or nonprofits, he says, they are the secular apocalypticists of our age, not much different than Savonarola, the reformer. The world is ending and we need a radical break with our previous practices. Alan Noble was, was writing about it and said that he do recognize sort of a desperation to do enough, a fear that they're, that we're not using our resources uh, optimally. Um, the, and at the very, the very end of the article, the, the author asks McCaskill what made him most apprehensive. He thinks for a moment, my number one worry is, what if we're focused on entirely the wrong things? What if we're just wrong? What if AI is just a distraction? Like, look at the Greens and nuclear power. Panic about meltdowns appears in retrospect to have driven disastrously short-term bets. McCaskill paused for a long time. It's very, very easy to be totally mistaken. I mean, that's cool. That is good. I like that last line. Yeah, that's. I like that. <laughs> they all, by, by the way, give away ten percent of their income, just, just, you know, just conveniently. You know, it's a. They came up with that number randomly. I wonder. <laughs> what, yeah. Um, it's, 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 so there's something beautiful about it. It's a, it's a sort of a yes. sacrifice. It's a, there's a moral impulse here to, for the sake of the other, which I think is beautiful, but it's married to an anxiety and a lack of any kind of obviously sense of providence or grace that, um, in which the burden to, you know, every time it's, it's literally like every Starbucks cup of coffee I have. It's not just that I'm not donating that money to, you know, solving some water crisis in, uh, you know, Thailand, but it's like, I'm actively killing young Thai kids. Like that's how they would see it by having a beer instead of donating that money or something like that. It's, it's tortured. It's very tortured. Yeah. I mean, it feels a bit, um, suicidal. I don't know. Well, just the, joyless, the, yeah. joyless, like that, that, that giving philanthropy, yeah. I mean, what an amazing thing to be able to give money in a way, give money away in a way that's going to uh, positively affect other people's lives. But when you think about it in these terms, it feels like you rob it of any kind of joy at all. Not that it's about you, you know, but um, I don't know. That's It's rough. There's huge amounts well, of I, infighting I, I, about like how much it's okay to spend on, say, running a retreat or a housing the people that are working for the organization. It's It's very... Freighted. That sounds so fun. Um, I think that I think the question that as Christians that is is interesting to me in light of this is like, 
but who's taking care of them? Mm. Right. Because we, we give, and I certainly had this modeled for me by my parents in certain circumstances where they would give a lot of money to things, not having a lot of money themselves, not knowing, I mean, they were self-employed, so not knowing what the next year would look like. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but there's a, like a, a trust, a, a faithfulness, um, in that, that we will be taken care of. Mm. And I think that's actually in some ways like a key component to Christian generosity is that we, we give knowing that like ultimately we're going to be okay. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean we give and then like we're so it will come back to us, you know, whatever tenfold, but like we give knowing ultimately, like ultimately. And I mean that like in our deaths that we will be okay, Mm -hmm. you know, that we belong safely in the arms of Jesus. And so you know, I, I, I say sort of suicidal or even nihilistic because like when you follow this kind of line of thinking to its natural end, it becomes like, well, you know, the best thing is just less people on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just me being here is cla- causing global warming. Like just me being here is killing small children in other countries, like which is, you know, true on some level. Right. I mean, I'm sitting here at my table full of you know, a sweater that who knows who made that sweater. And yeah, I mean, like I write, I'm, I, all of my, the components of our lives, like we don't have that much control. I mean, honestly, it reminds me of the anxiety as I encountered in seminary, mm. a lot of it, just like, you know, that whole conversation where it was like, somebody walked in with a banana and another seminary student was like, I can't believe you're eating a banana. And the guy was like, Oh my gosh. Like I thought he really was. It was like the sweetest, tenderest moment. He was like, I thought, I had done good. Like it's not meat and it, you know, and it was cheap and it was like all these things. And the guy was like, don't you know how bad bananas are for the planet? And I was like, oh my God, you know, but that's, I mean, that feels a lot like this to me. So. Yeah. I think uh, these guys would have been very mad at the woman who poured out the perfume on Jesus' feet. Ooh. Remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. That could have been sold and the wages could have, you know, yes. uh, for a year's wages yeah. and that money could have been given to the poor. And Jesus says, um, leave her alone. She's done a lovely thing for me and, and this story will be told for all time, right? Because what matters is the things that are done in love, mm-hmm. what's done in love, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it just feels like, I know there's love behind what, what these people are doing doing um but uh, i don't know is it love or is it obligation i mean and which is like the reminds me of the beekner quote right is it love or is it obligation and those are two very different things and and what what's interesting to me is like as our lives go on that's the the solid ground of god right is as my life goes on I give things away. I'm given things, but I ultimately know that God will take care of me. Like maybe these are stronger people than I am, but if I I could adhere to a lot of this stuff, if I were like young, childless, you know, like my life was less complicated, but like as soon as complication came in, I'd be like 10%. I don't think so. You know, like I would immediately start shifting things mm-hmm. because there's not, there's, it's, it's, there's no solid ground there. I think that, you know, that's, that's, 
that kind of prescribed behavior. I mean, you don't hear, I didn't hear a single mention of children in this article, but maybe they, right. they would think I that that's either, not, um, that yeah. that's not uh, uh, logical. Responsible. There's a very- As a college student said to me last year, when we were talking about having children. She just looks up and she's been doing stuff and she goes, in this economy? I don't think so. <laughs> so like, I mean, I get it. Well, it's, it, but there's a coldness to it. I, I mean, yeah, you're right. It is, it is, there's a, intense compassion and i think a desire to do something good that i that should be lauded and you know like these and especially to the extent that it's sacrificial i I find it kind of beautiful and yet um there is also the corresponding anxiety that comes from a sort of it's up to me and us and if we don't do it everyone's gonna die and that's a burden that i think actually um like productivity scores can uh, kill a person and make them want to give it all up entirely and say, I'll just, uh, I'm just going to go, you know, go to Vegas, Sarah. I mean, I'm gonna... <laughs> just go to Vegas. So I, I did sense, I didn't sense that quite as much joylessness as I thought, but I did think that there, the, I guess it's, 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 a. Uh, am conflicted because there's something they're like, they're trying to justify themselves by works of the law, like very clearly, like I am trying to, de- and, uh, I need you as my friend and as my colleague to d- poke holes in my arguments. There's something sort of anti-sentimental. There's truly, it's truly anti-heart. It's all head and logic feels kind of, you know, cerebral um, and a little bit, uh, you know, ag- against the spirit of play. And yet um, I find that that endless nitpicking of like who's got the exact right way and who's living the most consistently, you know, it, it just never ends. It's 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 a goal that has no end, and for that reason, it is not pursued out of freedom. And um, maybe they would, uh, what they would say, that we're probably overly sentimental. But I hear what they're what they're on about, and I I view it with both. Oh, they're trying to live consistently. They're like the guy who did this sort of year of living biblically, you know, and he like did everything commanded in the Bible. And you want to say, God bless you. Good luck. Let's talk in yes. two years, you know, and like, and um, when, when, uh, and, and it, of course, like philosophically, I guess you could get into sort of like things like, well, what does it mean to live well if you're trying to help someone in a developing country? And like, are you trying to increase just their ability to stay alive? Or do you care about their dignity? Or do you care about their, the beauty? Uh, do you, what, what is the kind of, um, what, there are other values involved and it, it has a way of being almost dehumanizing in this, in the, in this, in pursuit of being uh, human or helping human being benevolent. And I find that sort of the means, everything is means to an end, uh, can be a little bit, uh, a little bit antiseptic, shall we say. Did I tell you about the book I read at the beginning of the summer called Mountains Beyond Mountains about this guy, Dr. Paul Farmer, That's who was such this a good book. Have you read that? It's fabulous. Did you get that to me? It just, it just turned about. I, anyway. I don't know, but I was obsessed with Paul Farmer. It's so time. good, right? Yeah. And he's this 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 Harvard-trained doctor who teaches at Harvard and, and practices at this amazing hospital in Massachusetts, but also starts his health center in Haiti and works on health issues in Russia and, and Peru and just all over the place. And he is thinking about these questions like, how do we save the most lives possible? But he also will spend eight hours hiking through the Haitian mountains to visit a single family yeah. and check in, check in on them. And, he, and he's saying, you know, look, just because um, it's expensive to save someone's life in Peru, it's worth it. It's worth the money. Like, it's worth $20,000 to, yeah. to, to do this. And so he's, he con- he's constantly wrestling with these um, questions of efficiency and efficacy and economy and just humanity. 
and I think he's a Christian. I think he's definitely Jesus adjacent, although he expresses his faith more in in doing than in professing. But it's just a, it was a really challenging and beautiful book about someone who's who's trying to do who loves what he's doing and loves people and is just pouring out his life for these people, um, and yet really resisting. Um, that kind of long-termism, right? Like, how do we set up sustainable systems? And he's like, no, how do we save this person's life now? <laughs> you know, this yeah. person that I love needs saving now, and I know it's going to cost $50,000, and that's ridiculous to think about, but they're going to die, and if we don't save this person, who will we save? And, um, yeah, it's a power, you know, powerful book. You know book. he died this past February. Did you know that? I knew, I looked him up. Yeah. I knew he was dead, but I didn't realize he died so recently. Yeah. Um, I, I loved Amazing, his man. I, I felt like he was, yes. I mean, he was so, um, it's not like I want to say like, oh, he was the best at it, but he was so, cause I, I he was the know. best at it. Well, and by his own admission, he said, if, if, if was, our, if our, if our, if our organization depends on everyone working as hard as me, we're doomed <laughs> because yeah. I am living an unsustainable existence. But yeah. Yeah. Well, but he just felt like he, he expressed honestly that what you're saying, this, this tension between, um, the small picture and the big picture. Yes. And I loved his book because honestly, I just think he, he was was such a pastor i know yes. he wouldn't self-describe that way totally a pastor but I, I read that book in seminary and found it incredibly moving just as a pastor of taking care of big picture taking care of people in front of you like yes yeah he's remarkable i think of him every time i fly because there's so much in that book about how much he was on an airplane yeah so. yes. and he felt so guilt- guilty about is not being the same on, on an airplane yeah. though i think yeah. yes yeah efficiency yeah, yeah. efficiency yes. and effectiveness are not the same and thing. sometimes i just sometimes you know? love and righteousness they get they're, they're, they often feel like opposed to each other. I was at a wedding recently where um, people were giving toasts about the, the groom and the bride and groom about how they loved McDonald's and, uh, and they, he's, uh, they love like Prayers muscle Lord. cars and it was there just like works for the auto industry. And then one of the a family member who's dear and sincere, but, and very much um, an environmentalist gave this a, a toast. that was almost a response. It's saying, we love you too so much, but please stop eating at McDonald's and please buy, oh buy an electric car. And I thought to myself, I, I, he was, it was sort of being tongue in cheek, but I, at the yeah. same time I thought, ah, something, <laughs> I don't know if this is the time. Um, and, and there's another... <laughs> also, clearly a lot of Read people love the McDonald's. Room. Like, is this where we're starting this campaign? Well, the, at a wedding? The, the New Yorker quotes one of the uh, primary cri- uh, um, uh, critics of this uh, movement. His name is philosopher Bernard Williams, who says that someone who seeks justification for the impulse to save the life of a spouse instead of that of a stranger has had one thought too many. <laughs> because <laughs> that's, so that's so what good. these guys are thinking they're thinking like well what's yes. more what's what, what saves more lives like if it saves two lives rather than the life, life of my spouse i'm clearly saving the two lives of strangers you know it's it's you, you think it's a little bit um uh, you, yeah. yeah it's, it's a, a little bit, bit godlike right oh, totally like, that's what it is it like enters into this realm of like you get to play god and decide who lives and decide who dies and it's know. another like yeah. I just it's big as a person who throws away all her recycling because her parents died so she earned all the recycling credits like hard for me to relate and yet all these people tithe you know and like we're <laughs> I don't know <laughs> it's like they Alan Noble was writing about it. it's like the only difference I can see between them and church going Christians is that they actually tithe <laughs> <laughs> um well let's end with another sort of global piece which was fascinating Eve Fairbanks has written a book about white South Africans Afrikaners and there was a big article in the Atlantic in the middle of July 
uh, she was sort of taking the temperature of what's going, what it's like to be a white South African. Um, and what in today's climate, she, what she found was both startling and revealing. She, she re- describes a real widespread sadness that's palpable among the former ruling class of that country. Uh, even, and actually even especially among those who worked the hardest to dismantle apartheid. Um, hmm. Yes, there's like the loss of purpose that kind of accompanies, I think, like the success of a long-held cause, but there's also a hunger the arrival for fallacy. further atonement <clears throat> and a bafflement yeah. of what some social scientists call non-complementary behavior, what we might call grace. So there's a little, they're all walking around like Javert at the end of um, Les Mis. This is what uh, Fairbanks writes. She says, many white South Africans told me that black forgiveness felt like a slap in the face. By not acting toward you as you acted toward us, we're showing you up, white South Africans seem to hear. You'll owe us a debt of gratitude forever. And perhaps the strangest thing I saw was how deeply troubled white South Africans were by this feeling that white people had never really faced a full reckoning for apartheid. The Afrikaner journalist Ryan Mallon, who opposed apartheid, has written that, by most measures, its aftermath went better than almost any white person could have imagined. But, as with most white progressives, his experience of post-1994 South Africa has been complicated. A few years after the end of apartheid, he moved to an upscale Cape Town neighborhood. Most mornings, he drank macchiatos at an upscale seaside cafe, the kind of cosmopolitan place that, thanks to sanctions, had hardly existed under apartheid. The sea is warm and the figs are ripe, he wrote, but this sort of existence is unbearable. He just couldn't forgive black people for forgiving him. Paradoxically, this is what Fairbanks writes, being left undisturbed served as an ever-present reminder of his guilt, how, how wrongly he had treated his maid and other black people under apartheid. Later on, he wrote this, journalist wrote this, the Bible was right about a thing or two. It is infinitely worse to receive than to give, especially if the gift is mercy. Wow. <laughs> I like was blown away. I couldn't believe that. The the insistence, um, the nonstop guilt. Punish me. Pun- punish me. me. And like I cannot mm-hmm. forgiveness is too difficult. I would rather, as Javert does, uh, jump into, you know, the Sien and uh die than um to have to Except uh, mercy. It's very crime and punishment, right? You know, gets away with the murder but doesn't get away with anything. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I don't know. Is what do you think, Sarah? Uh. Hey, yeah. I mean, it's. Dave picked a heavy one. It makes I know. Like what a closer. Um, it makes me think of how unreconciled the American South is in terms of race Mm. and how much my aunt Becky would want me to say how unreconciled the entire United States is with race. Okay. Sarah, not just the South, but, um, but I would say that I'm now wondering if part of that isn't, especially in the South, we're more, we're more Christian. Um, we're more Bible belty that Maybe we have a maybe we have a firmer grasp grasp on mercy, right? Theologically, and so we're just pushing it away because we know what this was what it will feel like. I don't know. That's it's very interesting to me. Like, um, because there is a thing with 
when we are forgiven um, and when we don't, uh, you know, and forgiveness is really real. Forgiveness is never really deserved. Yeah. Um, that it, it, it just, you feel it in a deeper way. Like you remember those moments. I mean, I, I've said this moment so many times, I think on this podcast, but I always think of the moment when I was talking to our son and he was like six or seven years old and, you know, we were talking about yelling and I was like, yeah, I don't yell as much as I used to when you were little. Thanks, Lexapro. And, <laughs> and he was like, and I was like, I'm really sorry I yelled so much when you were little. And he said, it's okay, mama. I was your first baby. You didn't know. And I think about that moment like a lot, you know, cause it was like total, like I was the parent. I could have been better resource. Like I don't deserve a six year old's forgiveness, you know? And, but it, it, it changed something in me. It shifted something in me. And, um, there's a, yes, there's relief, but there's also, um, um, a sense of, of sadness, you know, because like, if you, if I say that I'm sorry and you forgive me, then we both know that it really happened. Yeah. And we have to live in that reality. Hmm. Um, <laughs> that's uncomfortable. So. It, 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 I'm a little, I'm also, what's uncomfortable is the acknowledgement that it, atonement, this sort of dirty word in certain circles is like, mm-hmm. it, these aren't, Christians in South Africa, right. they're like, I do not feel okay without some form of atonement. <laughs> right. And I need to atone. I feel much more comfortable because it puts me in control to suffer right. and to feel like I'm contributing something to this. It's too uncomfortable. Uh, this acknowledgement that there is something necessary about atonement, but also something deeply um, offensive uh, when people uh, refuse to enact the price that perhaps they're owed. I think it's... Um, it's so interesting to me. By the way, there's a lot of this in Better Call Saul. So, um, huh. I, well, and I have a question. The article may have said that, or may not, and you may not be able to answer. But I wonder about the religious religiosity of people of color in South Africa versus people who are white in South Africa. Like, I, it's just a fascinating, right? Like that. I just wonder if how those how those are different because you know you're you, they re, there really is this expression of of clear grace that they're not you know saying well this is how you can atone but it's just it's done um you've done i mean it's almost this feeling of like well no you've done enough and you've been forgiven you know we don't need you to do more mm-hmm. so yeah i i'm it's it's got to be a little bit of the the like charleston south carolina thing where the you know where yeah. that where those wonderful uh, ladies came out and pronounced forgiveness and then everyone in the white establishment was so scandalized and said this is just a a, a learned coping mechanism we cannot yeah. accept yeah. this we have to atone yeah. we have to make things better and yes of course yeah. you do but it was so um condescending <laughs> to say that these people who were in a church when this happened don't actually believe what they're there to to talk about i mean i always thought to myself gosh they took us to school and um yeah. it, in a, in a sense that is is deeply I, that's where the future lies i think of any kind of global christianity is probably in these sorts of communities but what do you think rj i'm trying to think you know it, it, you know i take things personally all the time and i'm wondering if there's ever a moment when i was forgiven for something i felt like it was unforgivable and any impact that I, and i can't i'm having a tough time coming up with a corollary in my own life i wonder so 
it's also true that South Africa remains one of the most unequal countries on the face of the earth, right? I think right. there's a stark divide economically between, so is it, I mean, I can see it being troubling to him where be like, okay, apartheid ended and my life got better, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And like this, this wasn't the way it was maybe supposed to work. Like, okay, yes, there's political freedom in some sense, but, but things haven't, Things haven't equaled out the way that they they need to. There's still a stark, a stark, you know, um, you know, financial or whatever you want to say, divide of resources. So, I just wonder if that troubles him. It makes me wonder about other reconciliation processes, like Rwanda, for example. Like, does the same sort of thing exist after the genocide and the whole truth and reconciliation process? It makes me wonder about you know all those ex Nazis who fled to Argentina. <laughs> you know what they what they dealt with. Um, in the aftermath of of perpetrating such an awful crime, I don't know. I got to think about it more. But that's what he says about his existence being unbearable. I mean, I think that's that's true for a lot of people who are living privileged lives in the Western world. Like, they're certainly taking a lot of medication, and you know, uh, to help them deal with their existential pain. For sure, uh, effective altruism. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I do. I, I I am certainly not of a minority category at all. Um, I mean, besides my lady parts, but <laughs> you know, having been through something that someone did that caused mm. such a huge loss in my life, um, I have had people say to me, "There's no way you've forgiven that person." I've had people say to me, "You should be angrier." And what I know is, um, you know, and I don't know it because someone has really told me, I just know that if you cause two people to die, you are carrying enough of a burden. And I know that I'm not interested in making that heavier and I'm only interested in forgiving you. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I I feel mm. it's this <laughs> is a weird thing to admit, but I remember when the Charleston thing happened, and I remember, you know, especially white liberal people um, saying like, "Well, this is uh, this is appalling, and and clearly this is like a result of colonialism, and you know, enslaving people, and you know, putting our religion of Christianity on them, and whatever, whatever, whatever." And thinking like, well, okay, I mean, like, okay, maybe, like, I can, I can kind of see where you're coming from. And now having experienced what I've experienced, like, I don't think that anymore. I'm like, oh, actually, no, like, actually, the forgiveness is real. And actually, the, the love of Jesus, like, pushes through all boundaries. And, and it's actually, the only way you move forward, it's right? The only, it's it. That's it. That's it. There's no other way. There's what no is, other what way. Is, what does so. uh, Dolly say, right? Forgiveness, that's, that's all there is. Yeah, that's all there is. Well, I think mm. that's all there is to this episode. Um, and uh, put all those links in the show notes. Thank you, uh, both of you, for showing up today and uh, for offering the gift of something. Maybe mercy. Something close. Something, <laughs> something. pretty close to it to me. Um, and uh, psyched to have you back. And we're, we'll, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Um, but yeah, God bless you. And thank you all of you for hanging in there while we took a break. It was, it was really, yeah. really nice to get some breathing time there. But All right. Bye, guys. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.